I've got some uh, members of my Central Cross Country team here this morning, so shout out to the runners from Central today. <clears throat> um, as I was here singing this song this morning, uh, God kind of put an image in my mind of, of what I was getting ready to do, and that image was like somebody that was getting ready to go into a ring uh, to do battle. And um, you can imagine the damage that I could do in a boxing ring. Um, but it reminded me of one of our runners this year, um, Shelby. Shelby had this habit during her runs of you'd look at her, and especially towards the end of the race, she'd shake those arms out and, you know, like pumping herself up and just like, come on, keep going. And just reminded me of like, Shelby was like looking like she was getting ready to, to go into a fight. So, um, but that's really what we're in here, guys, as we go into, into this, uh, these basic and really critical, um, you know, doctrines of the Christian faith, uh, we're, we're in a battle uh, for our hearts and minds because we have an enemy that does not want us to, to understand these things, does not want us to live in these things and experience the, the freedom that should come from these things. And so don't ever forget that. Every morning you wake up and you enter into your day, you're waking up into a world at war. So don't ever forget that we're in a battle each and every day. The author of this book of Romans that we've been taking a look at is the Apostle Paul. And I want to begin today with just a brief reminder about his unique calling. Paul was a Pharisee. We've been talking a little bit about who those guys were. They were um, a a religious elite uh, in the Jewish um, class, and they were committed to living out the, the Old Testament law and then a bunch of like, literally like 2,000 plus man-made laws they came up with uh, down to just everything you can imagine in life, trying basically to earn God's favor um, through, you know, their obedience. And what that led to, it kind of started off as a, as a good desire. What it led to was a lot of spiritual pride and this sense that, you know, I'm kind of better than everybody else so I should have the more prominent seats and then the fancier outfit to church and, and um, you know, kind of looking down on everybody. And Jesus said to them when he came, he said, you guys have weighed down your people with all of these rules and stuff you all made up that they're really just rob life from folks. So you can imagine when Jesus came onto the scene and he's claiming that he's God and he's associating himself not with the Pharisees, as a matter of fact, like his harshest words were for them, but he's hanging out with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners, you can imagine that Paul and his buddies were a little ruffled by that because Jesus' radical grace and love were far outside of how Paul and and his Pharisee friends had had understood how to gain God's approval. But Jesus turned it all on, on its head upside down and it was very difficult for them to grasp. And so to kind of protect his way of thinking, his way of life, Paul became um, an enemy of the church. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he became kind of the leading uh, guy on the front lines trying to stamp out Christianity wherever he saw it. And he was willing to, to travel far and wide to do that. And it was on one of those journeys to a city called Damascus one day that God blinded him and, and knocked him off his donkey. And this is how Jesus spoke to him and described what he was supposed to be doing. This was recorded in, in the book of Acts. Jesus said this to Paul. He said, now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes, turn them from darkness to light, 
and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So that's what Paul is trying to do here in the book of Romans and what he's trying to do for us today is he's trying to open our eyes. He's trying to move us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, from from slavery to freedom, trying to help us to begin to live into the identity that God says that we are. God says you're this way, now believe it and live that way. So I'm going to begin and end today with the same question. As we prepare to go into Romans chapter 6 today, here's the thing that I want kind of floating around in your mind as we talk, and it's this. What would it mean for my life if I lived like I really believed this stuff were true? What would it mean for my life if I lived like I really believed that this stuff were true? One of the themes that we've discussed so far in the book of Romans is that when God gave the, the Jews in the Old Testament, the Old Testament law, which included the Ten Commandments, he didn't give, them, didn't give that to them or to us today as this checklist of morality that we could somehow, through our own efforts, we could go through and, and you know, cross off the list of, yeah, I've accomplished that and I can do that as something we're supposed to strive to be perfect in. He actually gave it to us to make us aware that we could never do it. And so it was really there to kind of bring it to our attention, our need for God. And, and last week, Justin led us through the tail end of chapter 5, which included this verse, verse 20. It said, the law was added so that the trespass or the sin might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. As we begin chapter 6 then, Paul is, is anticipating an argument um, that his detractors might be trying to, to go based on that verse, kind of like a path you could go down. So go ahead and open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 6, which is page 784. Let's take a look at verse 1. <clears throat> he says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? So that grace may increase. Now throughout history there have been groups of people who would call themselves Christians that have actually lived by this mantra. I'm going to go and sin more because if I do then it will give God the opportunity to show me more grace. I mean it's a win-win. I get to do what I want to do and he gets to show how amazing he is. Right? And so why worry about being moral at all if God's just going to forgive me? And that seems kind of ridiculous, but honestly, many of us sitting here today, we live the exact same way. Some of us sitting in this room this morning might be thinking, you know what, if if God's just going to forgive me, I mean, if I can just, you know, confess my sin and take communion and and, and he's, you know, going to wash my slate clean, then why get so worked up about, about how I really live, like... I mean, isn't it all going to be good in the end? And we can take like one verse from Scripture and build our whole theology like on 1 John 1, 9. You could put that slide up there. It says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Sounds like we'll be pretty good, man, if we can do 
whatever we want. We just screw up from time to time. And if we just confess it, he's faithful, he's just, he'll take care of us. Now, we might not actually say those words out loud, kind of that sentiment that, you know, I can really kind of just play by my own rules. And in the end, I mean, you know, God will forgive me and, and, and I'll go to heaven. So even though we know what we're doing is wrong, according to the scriptures, even as Christians, we still sleep with our boyfriend or girlfriend. We, we worship material things. We continue to gossip about people, and we know that's wrong. We continue to, to feel like we're better than people, and we know that's wrong. We choose to ignore the poor and the sick. We choose not to tithe, or certainly not to tithe 10%. And then we take God's money and we go and spend it on nicer cars, nicer homes, nicer vacations, nicer clothes, nicer gadgets for ourselves. All the while, while we're being blatantly disobedient to the things God is very clear are sinful choices, we convince ourselves that God will forgive us and that it's really not that big of a deal. So you can see how this line of thinking can be kind of dangerous don't you? What's the point of grace? Is it to allow us to continue sinning? No, it's, it's to deliver us from the slavery and the bondage and lead us towards freedom. Most of you guys are familiar with the story of the woman caught in adultery. And she's literally grabbed out of the bed and drug out into the street and placed before Jesus. And the people in the crowd grab a, a stone because according to the Old Testament law, they had the right to stone her to death. And you know the story Jesus says, you know, he who is without sin can cast the first stone and they all realize that none of them are perfect and so they drop their stones and they go home. To me, the key is what he says to the woman after that. Because he looks at the woman and he says, has no one condemned you? And she says, no, no one. And he says, well, neither do I. But he says this, but now leave but now go and leave your life of sin. He doesn't say, you know what, you're probably going to make a mistake again, and I'll probably just forgive you, so don't worry about it. I mean, just kind of, you know, go live your life, and I'll let you off the hook again. No, he says, leave your life of sin. <laughs> that, that, that way you're living is, is, is not only disobedient, but it's, it's just, you're, you're so much better than that. I've created you to be something better than that. In verse 2, Paul addresses this line of thinking that we've just been talking about by focusing on our true identity as followers of Christ. So let's, let's take a look at verse 1 and 2 again. He says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Now the original Greek translation of that, that uh, phrase, by no means, really should be translated like this. May it never be. May it never be. That's like the strongest Greek phrase they had at the time. All right? So let me ask you this. When you look in verse 2, you see the words we a couple different times. We died to sin. How can we live it any longer? Who, who is the we that, that Paul is talking to here? Who, who, who is his audience? Are they, are they Christians or non-Christians? They're Christians. Okay. So what, what is, when he says we, what is all wrapped up into that we? What has he been talking about 
in terms of who we are, their identity so far. If you look back at chapter 5 and some of the things we've talked about, what have we found out about we? What, what are some of the things that are true about us that Paul has already told us about? Look at 5 verse 1. We are people who have been what? Justified. What does it mean to be justified again? To be what? What does it mean if you've been justified? I've only said it like a thousand times in the last three weeks. I hope you picked up on this. What's that? Made right. Okay, you've been made right with God through the death of Jesus on the cross. Okay, so we are people that have been justified. Skip down to, to 517. What else is true about us? Who are the we? We are people, it says, for if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace? So we've re- we are people who have received a, an abundant provision of grace, more grace than we will ever need. And that verse goes on to say that we have also, if I can find it, And we have the gift of righteousness reign in our life through that one man, Jesus Christ. So we are people who have been justified. We talked about we we have peace with God. We are people who have been given this abundance of grace. We are covered over by his grace. We are people who have been given the gift of righteousness. Okay, these are all things about us, our true nature now. And then in verse 2, Paul adds to our character profile by saying that we are dead to sin. So how can we live in it any longer? You see, it has to be one or the other. We can't be dead to sin and alive to sin at the same time. Do we understand that? Those two realities cannot exist together. Either we are under the reign and control of sin, or we are under the reign and control of grace. And this is one of the most critical truths that we can ever kind of try to wrap our minds around here in the Bible. And so we're going to take some time to sit in this for a few minutes and try to soak as much out of it as we can. Um, Okay, I want to read from uh, a commentary on on Romans. This guy tries to explain it. Um, Here's what he says. It says, the moment a man has been justified by God, God says to him, in effect, I am going to deliver you completely from the power of sin. I will start at once by taking you out of its realm and its kingdom and putting you into the kingdom of my dear son. Then progressively, I will deliver you until finally you are perfect and without blemish or spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That is what Paul is saying, that we died to the reign and the realm and the rule of sin. Paul describes it like this in Colossians. This is what he says, Colossians 1. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so there's this continual image of he's taken us out of this realm and he's brought us into this new place. Okay, he's rescued us. So the obvious question for all of us imperfect Christians is this, is if I'm dead to sin then why do I keep sinning? Anybody thinking that this morning? Doesn't seem to make sense. And we likely lean one way or the other when challenged by this seemingly contradictory reality. 
One way that we can kind of lean is to um, feel really frustrated and guilty that we can't quite seem to live the life that, that God wants us to live, that we want to live. And, and so we just keep striving and trying harder and we get more accountability groups and do all this stuff to, to try to earn God's favor through our actions. That's one path you could take. The other path is just to say, you know what, I'm never going to do it, so I'm just going to give up. And most of us live in that tension. And at least I know when I'm, you know, looking at this, I'm thinking, please tell me that there's another option. (laughs) Please tell me that there's something that I'm missing here, that that my options aren't just to, you know, continue striving to try to achieve this life that I'm I'm probably never going to be able to live or to just give up. The same commentator, um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he um, gives this analogy that I think is really helpful. This is what he says. He says, think of two fields with a road between them. The field on the left represents the dominion, the kingdom, the territory, the empire of sin and of Satan. That is where we all were by our natural birth. But as the result of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ for us and upon us through the Holy Spirit, we have been taken hold of and transferred to the field on the right of the road, delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. I was there on the left, I am now here on the right. Yes, but I spent many a long year in the first field, and the devil is still there with all his powers and his forces. This is a picture of what often happens. As a Christian, I am here in the new field, and Satan cannot touch me. As we are told in, in John's first epistle, 1 John chapter 5, verse 18, that the evil one cannot harm him. He cannot touch us because we are no longer in his kingdom. He cannot touch us. You think he's trying to get a point across here? <laughs> but he can shout across the road at us. Every Christian who falls into sin is a fool. The devil cannot touch us. Why then do we listen to him? Why do we allow him to frighten us? Why do we pay any attention to him? We no longer belong to him, and he cannot touch us. What can't he do? There you go. We know that scripture asserts our freedom as an actual fact, but because of the old habit, the old influence, like the slaves that have been set free, we tend to forget it. And when he speaks to us, we listen to him and fall under his spell. We should resist him. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But we fail to realize it. The whole object of the apostle in this sixth chapter is to get us to realize it. It is not true yet, perhaps, in your experience, but though it is not yet true in your experience, it is true as a matter of fact. We have got to believe it. That is why the apostle writes in this way. This is not a matter of experience primarily. He is dealing with a matter of fact. He says, you died to sin as a matter of historical fact. When you became a Christian, you ceased to be under the rule and the reign and the realm of sin. That is a fact. What is it? He is not talking about your experience. He is telling you something that is true of you, namely that you have been translated by the Holy Spirit from one kingdom to another. Guys, our problem is that we give the enemy too much credit. We give the enemy too much credit. Look back at 5.17 again. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more 
Will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ? Guys, the reign of grace is much more powerful than the reign of death. The reign of grace moves us consistently more and more out of darkness and into the light. By nature, life grows. So no matter how how slow your growth and transformation seems to be, it is a fact. If you are open to and, and cooperating with the Holy Spirit and what he's trying to do in your life, God is committed to changing you into the image of his son. It will happen. And our job is to shut out the voice yelling to us from across the road in the field that we used to live in, telling us that we haven't changed, that we're not the redeemed person. And we have to immerse ourselves in the truth. It blows me away when I talk to Christians who don't spend time in God's word. We have to know what is true about God and what is true about us so that we don't believe the lies. And namely, what we need to believe is that we are dead to sin. And God is asking us to believe something about our redeemed nature that we struggle with, don't we? This isn't the first time that God has stretched his children's faith. I want you to turn back to the book of Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible, chapter 15. Genesis 15. It's a story of Abram, the, the guy that was kind of the, the founder of, of the Jewish people. And he had made a promise to Abram. And he comes back in, in chapter 15 in verse 1. And he says this, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir. But a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, guys, that sounds all good <laughs> until you kind of learn the backstory here. Abram is 99, his wife Sarah is 90. She's barren. She can't have any kids. And so when God takes him outside and says, look at all the stars, your, 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 your offspring are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, I mean, that's a stretch, okay? <laughs> Everything inside of him, all earthly logic screamed out that having a son would never happen. And guys, we have to do the same. We have to believe God when he says, you are dead to sin. It no longer controls you. And if we fall into sin, as we sometimes will do, it's simply because we're not believing what is true about us. Because if we always lived in that truth and believed it, we, we could not go on sinning. It, it's, it would be impossible. 
Let's look at verses 3 through 5 back in Romans 6. He says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. So now Paul uses the imagery of baptism to drive his point home. He says when you are fully immersed in baptism, you are identifying with the death of Jesus. Your old life is dead. And our natural birth into this world was a baptism into the condition of Adam. We've talked about because of Adam's choice in the garden, all of us are born into this sin condition. We are separated from God. We are hostile towards him. We are enemies towards him. Okay, we've, we've established that. But when we make a commitment to follow Christ with our life, and through baptism we represent that, we are made one with Christ, Paul is saying. It's the same imagery of marriage, of the two becoming one flesh. Okay, it says we are united to Christ through our baptism. We are one with him. And I, this, I say the same thing when I do a wedding. And we talked about this during the marriage series last spring. It doesn't seem like you and your spouse are one, but you are. <laughs> it's something that you have to believe. God sees you as one person. And, and this is the same reality he's saying here. You might not feel like you're one with Jesus, but God is telling you that you are. And so you have to, you have to take him at his word. And so if we are one with the sinless, spotless man, how can we go on sinning if we are one with Christ? Christ would never do that. God would not do something against himself. The truth is, guys, is that we are more powerful than we could ever imagine. I want to take a breath, okay, because I've loaded you down with a lot, all right? So let's just kind of take an EQ here, and I want you guys to talk to me. Anything that you've heard so far that's like making sense or clicking or something that's like a new thought, what's going on in your minds at this point? Maybe it's just cold and I wish you'd shut up. I don't know. Could be anything. Let's save those comments for yourself. But anything related to what we're talking about here that's been like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Humor me. Okay. She said it's important to remember, it's hard to remember how powerful we are, that we have this power in us. What else? Yeah. Okay. He says he's got so much for us if we would just obey him that we don't obey him because we're so caught up in the world. What else? Yes. So learning to depend and rely on the Holy Spirit is where it's at, and really just yielding yourself. And that's all God asks us to do is yield to Him and love Him. Yeah. And when we pour in. 
good. She said that road across the voice, you know, that, that Satan's nature is a liar. Okay, so we can hear his voice, but again, he can't touch us, right? So we've got to believe and remember that. And so that's good. Some good things there. This is powerful stuff, guys. All right. So not only have we been united with Christ in his death, but verse 5 says we can also be united with him in his resurrection. And this is how that we can live the new life that he talks about in verse 4. That word new in the Greek is the word kairos. Okay? And it means this. It means new, newness of quality and character. Okay, so when we were made new, we are made new in quality and character. And scripture is filled with descriptions of, of this new us, this new creation that God says that we are. When we identify ourselves with Jesus and we received his gifts of, of forgiveness and grace, these things are true about us. Here are some things that, that scripture tells us about ourselves. There it is. In Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So we have a new heart, a new spirit. Psalm 43, he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. So whatever it is, whatever song we were singing with our life before, when we come into Christ, he gives us a new song. Our desire, our life is about praising him. Revelation 2.17, he says, I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only known only to him who receives it. God gives us a new name as well that we don't even learn until we get to heaven. In other letters, Paul tells us that we are a new creation, a new creature, a new self. You didn't realize you were so amazing, did you? You've got all this stuff going on. In Christ, everything is made new. Now let's look at verse 6 and 7. It says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. How many of you have ever watched the show What Not to Wear? Hmm? Some of your guilty pleasures out there? Sure. Steve? Oh, man. You're kind of a fashion aficionado, aren't you? Yes. <clears throat> so if you haven't seen the show, this is what happens. They get some... Some frumpy, fashionless cretin who has no taste, and then these, these taste snobs, this guy and gal, they, they take him and they're going to you know, make him over, give him a whole new wardrobe, and basically show them what they could have looked like all along if they had any taste at all, or if they had the money to buy the clothes in which they're going to put on their backs now, which is the real kicker usually. So, so they do all this. They remake this person. You know, give them all the clothes they should have been wearing and fix their hair and makeup, blah, blah, blah. So at the end, they have this big unveiling party and they invite the family and friends and usually like the, the girlfriend or, or boyfriend, you know, and, and, uh, and so the person comes out and everybody sees how amazing they look now. And I think they gather a big crowd because they want to have more people that will keep this person accountable to never looking like they used to, right? We all think you're amazing. Don't go back to what you used to look like, Okay. Now, once that person has seen how good they look compared to how they used to look, it seems crazy to us to think that they would ever willingly choose to go back and put the old clothes on, you know, the old frumpy, nasty look they used to have. That doesn't make any sense. That seems crazy. But guess what? We do it all the time as Christians. God tells us that we're a new creation 
He tells us that our old self has been crucified, that we are not a slave to sin any longer. And what do we do? We go back and we start acting like we used to act when we were over in that other field. And I do it. I, I, I get selfish. I get critical. I get demanding. All the worst parts of my personality come out. And I'm, I'm choosing to wear my old clothes, the old man that I used to be. We forget who God says that we are, and we settle for a lie. And the only way that we can be slaves to sin again is if we ignore God and we give the enemy permission to enslave us. Because remember, he can't touch us. We all sin, but if we've been redeemed by God, we are no longer slaves to sin. We can no longer say to God, I can't help it. I I can't overcome it. That's a lie. We have the power of the resurrected Jesus living inside of us. We have all the power we need to do whatever it is that God has called us to. We don't have any excuses anymore, guys. But here's the problem. Our problem is we're not accustomed to the power that the resurrection provides us. We've been given something that we don't even know what we have. We're so used to the way we used to look. And then God comes and he redeems us and he completely changes us and he puts us in front of the mirror and he tells us who we are. And we're looking at ourselves and we're like, I don't know. I still, I kind of look like the same guy. You know, we have a hard time believing it. And Paul, that's why when he wrote his letters, you'll notice when he writes the letters to, to Ephesus and the Philippine stuff, he says, to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Philippi. And what he's saying is, is you don't feel like a saint, but I'm telling you that's who you are. That is your identity. So live like it. Not because you feel like it, but because God says that's who you are. And we hear those things, and we just, sometimes we just shake our head in disbelief, and we're like, no, that's not me. And you see, our, our comfort zone is still back in the graveyard of spiritual death, Because for years, all of us, when we were in that place where we were hostile and enemies of God, we had these self-protective measures. And we were were trying to to ward off the world as as it kind of beat down on us and told us that we weren't good enough. And so we had all these defenses and ways of protecting our heart from being hurt. And those things are so entrenched and ingrained in us. And to let go of those things feels really risky. And God comes along and he redeems us, but it's so hard to let go of those things that we used to do the way we used to be but jesus says you are dead to sin so put down those old ways of living take down take off those old clothes that's not you anymore he says put on my character that's your true identity whether you believe it or not you are holy you are pure you are patient you are loving you are kind You are self-controlled, not because of anything you've done, but because of Christ living in you. You are one with him. Not because you always feel like those things are true, but because God is telling you that they are. It's a fact. So, considering all of this, let's go back to our original question then. What would it mean for my life your life if I lived like I really believed 
those things that God says about me are true. If I really believed and lived out of my true identity, that I am dead to sin, I'm no longer a slave to that, but I'm alive in Christ. I have the power of Christ living in me to live the life that he's called me to. What would life look like if I really lived like I believed that stuff? Guys, that's where the rubber meets the road with all of this. If all you do is just come to church every week and and just absorb information about God, but it never goes from here to here to here, then what are we doing? (laughs) Go home and watch TV on Sunday morning. There's probably better things you can do with your time than just taking information that you don't ever apply. We're here to change, guys. At some point, what's true about us, we have to own and we have to live it. Because what we're doing is we're missing out. You see, Jesus didn't die on the cross just so that we could go to heaven. I just said that. He wants so much more. The the cross is about so much more than just our, our ticket to heaven, guys. It's about transformation. It's about bringing him glory in this world. It's about being a redeemed people who other people in this world desperately need to show them, look, there's hope. My life can change. I used to be this way, now I'm this way. That's why we tell our stories, right? So that people have hope that I don't have to be that way anymore, that I can have victory, that I don't have to be a slave, that I have an option. And if we're not doing it, the people that are coming and hearing this stuff every week, if we're not going out and living it, then who is? The world needs you guys to believe who you are, who believe in that, and to go live it then. Okay, but this is what it takes, guys. It is a battle every day. When you wake up tomorrow morning, the enemy is going to yell at you from across the field, and he's going to lie to you and say that you're not that powerful and that you can't overcome that. And you have to choose, no, that is not true. Nah, you know? What is true? God says that I am this. And I've got to live in that moment by moment. You can't just go from Sunday to Sunday, from month to month, thinking, oh, I'm just going to check in with God once in a while. You will get beat up and beat down by the enemy. So as we come this morning to the table, guys, Jesus wants us to receive this and be reminded that this gives us power. This is not just about God forgiving our sins. This is about him indwelling us to give us the power to go live the life that he's called us to. So don't shortchange what you're about to do. Take some time. Be silent before God. We'll dismiss you to come and receive this. But what you're receiving, guys, is power. And who you are is greater than you will ever know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths. God, we thank you that even though it doesn't make any sense, you tell us that we are dead to sin. That if we lived in that truth, that we would never sin again. That God, we are so easily tempted, so easily pulled aside, so easily lied to. So God, give us the strength, the courage to believe. Give us the wisdom to to understand the battle that we're in. 
God, help us to see as we are obedient and, and we walk in your grace and, and we see the victory and we see uh, how committed you are to changing us, how committed you are to redeeming us and making us more like your son, God, that we would be encouraged, that that would give us energy and, and life to keep going, to keep pressing on. God, this world needs to see people who have hope, who have been changed, who have been transformed, who have been healed. The world needs to see people who have been broken that are, that are put back together. So Lord, I pray that you would speak to every heart here. I pray that you would help, help show us what we would need to do tomorrow when we wake up to live in this new reality, God. And I pray that as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would call each other up to that new reality, that we would spend more time talking about who we are and not just the things that we aren't supposed to do. Help us to speak truth into one another's lives about who we are, to live out of that reality, God. We thank you so much for your son. As we come to this table and receive his body and his blood, we understand that it's power and it's life to us, that we are one with you. Hear our prayers right now.